there, history fans. And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of topics from the Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are covering the macabre history of Victorians and Egyptian mummies. Ooh. Yes, it's very macabre. So if you aren't into that kind of thing, don't don't listen to this episode. Fair, fair warning up front, there is a tad bit of cannibalism um, in terms of consuming bodies for medicinal purposes. It's just gross. Let's just say that. <laughs> If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to leave us a rate and review. It does help people to find us. You can also contact us if you'd like to through our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You can also go to our Facebook and Instagram pages, which is historyexplainsall underscore podcast. You can visit our Instagram page for our Today in History segment and to vote on upcoming episode topics. A vote is upcoming in about two weeks. Well, a week and a half by the time this comes out. Oh, speaking of when this comes out, um, two, we apologize for the, or one, we apologize for the late episode. Uh, we were having some audio issues on my end. And so this is the second time we've been recording this. And also we will be having a guest episode coming out in just a couple weeks, I think. No, just a week. Oh, it's already next week right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next week, guys. Next week. Yeah, we have a special episode. It is one part of a three-part series. Next week on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, a voting poll will be open. It'll be open for three days and three days only this time. But shall we head into this episode? And let's get this unwrapped. That was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize in advance. There are going to be a ton of really terrible mummy puns, and uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Enjoy. I'm not sure they're thankful for it. <laughs> Would you like to start on the lovely information on Egyptomania? I certainly shall. So Egyptomania pretty much started with the Romans, but since we're talking about Victorians today, uh, it's a fad, as we'll t we will cover in different sections throughout the episode, that has waxed and waned throughout history. Sometimes it's a big fad, sometimes it's not quite so big, and then it jumps right back up to being big. I think this last one lasted for several years. Technically, I'd say it's still going on today to a degree, but the Victorian fad of Egyptomania started actually with Napoleon. So his campaign into Egypt lasted from 1798 to 1801, and where he found uh, something pretty important. Which one are we talking about? Are we talking about the Sphinx? Or are we talking about the Rosetta Stone? I was thinking- Because those are both really important. It's true. I was thinking the Sphinx where you, it's like, oh, look, there's this kitty. Oh my God, there's a big kitty. Big kitty with a human face. Small kitty, big, big kitty. <laughs> but the Rosetta Stone also was quite important. So that started off the big Egyptomania craze. And by the 1830s, it was incredibly popular for upper-class Europeans and Americans to be flooding Egypt in search of treasure, quote-unquote. And it was not uncommon for people to just be robbing tombs either without you know, all, all the disrespect and everything. Hmm. What was the name of the, the, the route some of these upper-class Europeans would take on their travels throughout Europe? I forget what we called that. 
think it's the great british tour or something like that the great tour the grand tour grand the grand tour, tour yes because i know egypt was definitely a big stop on the grand tour for sure mm-hmm in 1833, Father Garam actually remarked to the ruler of Egypt at the time that, quote, it would be hardly respectable on one's return from Egypt to present oneself in Europe without a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other. And in fact, Egyptomania was quite the fad that it influenced practically every walk of Victorian life from decor we had unwrapping parties which we'll certainly get into for sure in fact actually this is gonna be really cool there was a source i found that stated one victorian gentleman claimed to have even attended 40 of these unwrapping parties which is a lot which you'll hear about pretty soon but it also influenced fashion architecture literature even social etiquette so much so that the duke of hamilton asked a man named Thomas, quote unquote, mummy, Pettigrew, who was a famous surgeon at the time, to actually mummify his corpse after he died. And Pettigrew obliged with a request. So in 1852, after the Duke died, he was mummified by Pettigrew, interred in a sarcophagus named Princess, which he apparently acquired from France. And to this day, the Duke is still interred in his sarcophagus. And going back to literature, there was a genre uh, that was called gothic horror that had come out prior to this time. I believe gothic horror started in the early 1700s, if I remember correctly. And at that time, it was mostly based on morality. And if you think back to Frankenstein, which was an early, a pre-Victorian early gothic horror story, it's about morality. Frankenstein is the monster that is influential or influenced by the morality of the people around him. Whereas imperialistic or Victorian horror, the monster focuses on the other. So anyone that is influenced to the problems of the characters. And Conan Doyle actually wrote a short story called Lot Number 249, which is actually the first story to characterize the mummy as a dangerous character. And in his story, the English main character has to defeat or conquer the mummy. But that also is very quintessential to just Victorian imperialism, all capital letters to the T. It was all about the proper Englishmen defeating the non-English is imperialism in a nutshell. What shall you talk about our uh, unwrapping parties? I should, but before... Before we get into that, I just want to add a little bit to your Egyptomania, if you don't mind. Another big influence was, as I said, the Rosetta Stone. The finding of the Rosetta Stone was amazingly important. The more important factor that also pushed Egyptomania even farther was the translation of hieroglyphs by Jean-Francois Champollion. The French guy translated hieroglyphs using, on the Rosetta Stone, there was ancient Greek I think it's uh, Hermetic. No, um, it's an ancient Semitic language that's also written on the Rosetta Stone. I can't remember which one Heratic? it is at the moment. It might be. You could be right, and I'm just like blanking at the moment. But we actually used, well, we, Jean-Francois Champollion actually used ancient Greek, which was still a language that we, we didn't speak it, but we read and wrote it and were able to understand it in that sense. And he used that 
to translate hieroglyphs. For all um, you linguistic and language lovers out there, I looked that up. It's quite fascinating. It's amazing. Uh, it's just, mm, I, I wish that I could read hieroglyphs, but uh, I did get you those books. Like, listen, it's it's a work in progress, okay? <laughs> I'm working on it, okay? <laughs> oh, it's demotic. Ah, the language of the common people, correct? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, so that was an extremely important factor. The translation just meant everybody else was also kind of rushing there trying to think that they could translate the, the hieroglyphs on the walls, which of course wasn't accurate because when you're doing a first time translation, you're not always accurate in your translation. You never are. So it was a work in progress at the time. And this is also a time when places like, oh, I don't know, the Crystal Palace were having large-scale exhibitions, museums were having large-scale exhibitions on Egyptian artifacts and, and history, including reproductions of things like their obelisks and temples. Just a little additional info there. But getting into some kooky wacky unwrapping parties let's let's get into that <laughs> ready ready the victorians certainly had their strange side go right ahead that's an understatement for the victorians for as prudent as they were spiritualism and death was pretty prevalent you think you think all right unwrapping parties they actually started with thomas quote mummy and quote pedigree that you mentioned earlier he was actually a well-respected doctor who turned this idea of unwrapping a mummy into, well, a spectacle. Well, that's what he basically did. An example of a mummy unwrapping is one that was done at an anthropology museum in, for an exhibition in 1857. I cannot speak. Uh, Theophile Gautier, who was a French author, attended the unwrapping and he goes on to describe it. He unwrapped, well, not he, but they unwrapped the mummy known as Neshkans. And uh, as they unwrapped her, several funerary objects or totems, however you would like to call them, fell out of her bandages. By the way, Neshkans was an Egyptian noblewoman from the 21st, 22nd dynasty. Yeah, 22nd, sorry. There we go. What is extremely fascinating is that while they're unwrapping and, and these objects are falling out of the bandages, people are commenting on the objects, but they're not commenting on what these objects are they're commenting on how they could repurpose them. I can turn that onk into a piece of jewelry. I can turn that uh, scarab beetle uh, thing into a bracelet, or I can put that on this, you know, that, that's basically what they're saying. And these unwrappings, part mummy parties became so famous that as you mentioned, the Duke of Hamilton decided he wanted to be mummified, which he was, as you said, and well, he's, he's still in his sarcophagus as we speak. Well, Thomas Mummy Pettigrew supposedly did these mummy unwrapping parties for scientific purposes, if that's what we're calling it. Yes, I'm using air quotes. Scientific purposes. There were a lot of them that were just done in nobles' homes or people's homes that could afford it, upper class, that were not for scientific research at all. It was just literally for fun. Basically, if a traveler came back with a mummy from Egypt, they would invite people to their house for the what was the social social event of the year. They would arrive at the house, they would eat and drink, and then they would unwrap the mummy, drinking 
drinking was very important because that helped tolerate the smell. Uh, as time went on, this would fall out of fashion and the Victorians came to the conclusion that what they were doing was wrong. Well, wonder, wonder how they came to that one. That unwrapping a dead person for entertainment should be taboo, which is what it turned into later on. As we said at the top of the episode, uh, we will be discussing mummy medicine, and this would be that part. So, if you tend to find the topics of possible or of cannibalism and consuming dead bodies to be queasy and not your style, I would skip ahead a few minutes. For those of you on the macabre end, I hope you enjoy. So, to start off, the name mummy comes from an ancient Persian word for uh, called mamea, which is actually a word that references bitumen, which is a natural occurring material. We actually use it to make asphalt. And it's actually been used in medicine for a very, very long time. I would also recommend not using it because it is known to be carcinogenic. But Europeans were actually introduced to bitumen or mamea during the Crusades. And it soon was shipped throughout Europe being touted as a cure-all. So this entire mummies as a cure-all that I'm going to get into possibly all started with a misunderstanding of a word that they thought meant something else. Because it was also believed that mamea was used as bitumen itself was used in the mummification process in ancient Egypt, which is how when you see a lot of the mummies, their skins are black. This bitumen is black. Again, it's used for making asphalt. But it's has not been found to actually been used during the mummification process that probably likely comes from other materials used in general decay of the body so there was we said that victorians had a major fad there was also a major fad in the medieval and early renaissance eras as well and it was believed that egypt had a replenishable amount of mummies and it was i mean it was a common thing to mummify the dead if everyone and all of Egypt got mummified, you certainly have a lot of bodies for sure, but I wouldn't call it replenishable. And I'm sure there's still plenty of mummies out there that we haven't found. But if you were an apothecary, particularly during the medieval and early Renaissance, and you did not carry powder of mummy, which is essentially powdered corpse, then you were not a reputable apothecary. People would generally not probably buy stuff from you because it was touted as a cure-all because of the whole bitumen and actual mummies themselves being confused in terms of word. I did find a source that stated some recipes for using mummy powder. And I'm going to go into that because I, I can't not do that. So here we go. So one of the recipes states, give powdered mummy in doses of two drachms for epilepsy, vertigo, and palsy. It can also be applied to external runes to prevent mortification. You're putting powdered corpse on your, your, your exposed wounds. Not very smart. The next one is called caseran's extract which is also a, a type of tincture, I believe. And it calls for mummies to be made into small pieces, soaked in wine or turpentine. The liquid is then reduced into a honey-like state. And it was also touted as a counterpoison to the plague and to resist all manners of infection. Ew. Very ew. The next one's a little more ew. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I, I kind of hope you're not eating during this. This next one's a little, little ew. It's called treacle of mummy. So mummy dessert. <laughs> Look on your face. Oh, oh, that's gross. And it calls for half a pound of tincture of mummy from the above recipe, four ounces of Venice treacle, salt of pearl and coral, two ounces of terra sigillata, which is a type of dirt, and musk. Mix and digest in a gentle heat for a month. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't understand that one. Gosh, why? Because bitumen itself was touted as a cure-all. And that's where we get most of this understanding from. I'm not even done with the recipes. I got one more. Triacle mummy. Okay. So the, the last one I have is called balsam of mummy. So cut mummy into small bits. Let it sit in olive oil for 40 days. Then let it sit in wine for 26 days. It was touted as a, a cure-all for wasted limbs to restore wasted limbs for consumption which is also tuberculosis and cures all ulcers and corruptions when taken five to six grains twice daily. Oh, this skepticism. Uh-huh. And it was so popular, particularly in the 15th and six or 16th and 17th centuries uh, for apothecaries to carry powder and mummy that Francois, the first of France carried a mixture of powdered mummy and rhubarb with him and a sash wherever he went to prevent accidents. I guess to help make sure he didn't trip over or something like a rabbit's foot in that sense uh-huh catherine de medici even sent her chaplain to egypt to acquire a mummy to make these tinctures as well too okay mm-hmm. well we did talk about it was all your 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 upper class europeans there is a book which is i'm absolutely have to get and it, it i just from the, the title alone i have to get this book it's called Mummies, Cannibalisms, sorry, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians by Richard Sugg, where he poses a question, which was, the question was not, should you eat human flesh, but what type of human flesh should you eat? I'll get into that. The first answer has always been Egyptian mummies, which you could crumble and powder into tinctures to apparently uh, stop internal bleeding. Uh, wouldn't put a dead corpse in my body. I'm good. Thank you. Skulls became a second popular ingredient. Specifically, powdered skull was touted as a uh, as a, a way to help with headaches, migraines, head pains in general. No doctor has ever told me to do that, and I have migraine because it's not real. Um, this next one is not for lovers of chocolate. Thomas Willis was a 17th century pioneer of brain science, which at that time I don't know what that means. But apparently he would regularly ingest a drink to stop bleedings. That was a mix of powdered skull and chocolate. Oh, okay. So milk chocolate with powdered skull mixed thing. Gotcha. Yeah, sure. I don't even like chocolate, but no, thank you. I'm good. I I still like chocolate and I will continue to enjoy myself with chocolate. But I'll, I'll just leave the skull part out. Maybe if, it, if the chocolate was in the shape of a skull, but not including actual skull. Yeah. That'd be fine. A shape is fine. As long as it doesn't actually include powdered skull in the ingredient. <laughs> so whether it was the head, the heart, the fat, the skin, or the bones of mummies, mixtures of it were believed to help with stopping blood, coughs, obstruction of the menses, uterine infections, difficult labor, joint pains, the pits left by measles, which I'm presuming means the scarring, dysentery, diseases of the head, and even epilepsy. Sounds like the penicillin of the Victorian era. 
the penicillin of Europe, Europe before penicillin. And there was a 16th century Swiss German medical reformer named Paracelsus. And I think a lot of this dead body consuming mostly probably comes from him to a certain degree, even though for a very, very long time, humans have consumed other humans in one form or another. But he apparently had an enthusiasm for eating dead bodies regarding medical purposes. So he believed that consuming animals, we gain their power, which is not an uncommon thing for lots of people to think. You eat the heart of a lion, you gain, you become the lion or something to that effect. If you eat the heart of a strong leader, say, then you ingest the qualities of that strong leader. And there was a chemist around the same time named Johann Schroeder, who was even more specific on the type of dead that one should be consuming. Quote, the cadaver of a reddish man, which he believed was the blood was lighter, so therefore the flesh better, uh, around 24 years of age, death of a violent death, not infection, and exposed to the moon's rays for one night and day was perfect. The flesh then would be treated so that it resembles smoked meat, unquote. This okay. next one, I, I, I have to include, but I don't want to. So I, I apologized. This one's quite disturbing. According to a 17th century physician, Pietro de la Valle, the best mummies were derived from, quote, according to him, the maidens and bodies of virgins. Because everything again, with the Victorians is all about purity and virginity. It wasn't just the Victorians, by the way. That's true. We did they they did romanticize the 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 medieval period. That's how we get the damsel in distress, though. But that view of maidens and virgins make the best mummies was also held by Jean Baptiste de Roquefort in 1824. So it goes all the way from the 1600s into the 1800s. How lovely! Righto. Just what I mean. Hmm. Well, as we said, that it Egyptomania waxed and waned throughout history, and as it was big in the Renaissance, but once the Enlightenment came, people realized consuming dead bodies and powdered dead cadavers uh, doesn't actually work, you guys. So maybe we should stop doing that and try doing real science for a change. So it waned from there until Napoleon's campaign in Egypt, and then it came back again. But apparently... It started the, the, so by around 1830s, it was a massive craze, but also by the end of the Victorian times and to the early, early Edwardians, people were already realizing, you know, also putting dead things in our bodies probably, again, isn't the best of ideas, but you could still buy it, powdered mummy and medicinal catalogs all the way up to 1924. I don't think that leads into my segment, amazingly. Uh, no, I, I will lead into that. <laughs> Give me a second. So well, uh, that time up to that time period is like correlates with what I'm going to say next. Oh, yeah. So Mamea was in such a demand throughout history, but particularly during the times of uh, during the Victorian times that there was a booming trade in fake mummies, which were usually made from ex executed criminals, from slaves, beggars and apparently camels. That's a new one. I don't know how camels resemble human bodies. But one example is from 1564, when Guy de la Fontaine, who was a physician to the King of Navarre, went to Egypt to investigate this supply of mummies. And he met a dealer there who had around 40 mummies and his stock in his shop. And when he asked him about it, the dealer told Fontaine that he collected the bodies of slaves and other poor people 
which he opened, filled them with bitumen, going back to the beginning of the segment, and then bandaged them up, dried them in the sun to give them the appearance of true Egyptian mummies. So another kind of macabre thing that the Victorians did with ground mummy was they put it in paint. Oh, yeah. Excuse me? Oh, yeah. You could have a painting on your wall and it had ground mummy in it in the color paint known as mummy brown. Uh, please give, me, give me one second to literally digest that. <clears throat> Bad pun. <laughs> yeah. So there were unwrapping parties and technically painting parties. Well, I mean, if you want to call it a painting party, but like some, some artists literally used a paint known as mummy brown, which was made up of ground mummy, including their wrappings, by the way, and added into some paint. And then you paint it on your canvas. And then your canvas painting was sold to somebody and it was put up on their wall in their house. Here, I thought mummy brown was just the name of the paint. Wrong. Mummy Brown was used uh, up until the 1950s from the 1500s, so it lasted for around 400 years. I'm sorry, again, I have to pause you. What? The color Mummy Brown made up using ground mummy lasted for about 400 years. Did you say until the 1960s? 1950s, 1960s, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we only stopped its use about 80 years ago. Okay. No, rather odd that it was such a long time, but hey. So the mixture to make the paint known as mummy brown consisted of, of course, mummy, white pitch, and myrrh. Yep. But and this nice. paint, I don't know. I, I think the myrrh was really just to mask the smell of dead mummy. That's probably true. I was going, the myrrh smells nice at least. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, yes. It could, this paint could be used as an oil paint or a water paint. The thing was, is that some artists literally thought the same thing you thought that mummy, the, the title mummy brown was literally just that a title, a, a name that was given to this paint color. They really didn't think that there was crushing ground up mummy in the paint. And when artists as artists began to discover that the paint they were using was made up of a corpse. They became upset. And there were some that literally ran to their art studio, got their paint tube of Mummy Brown and buried it in their backyard. Did mm-hmm. they put it in a small little sarcophagus? No, I think they just buried it in the ground to give it the idea of a proper burial. Some people put little daisies and flowers or they buried it in their flower garden kind of thing. So technically the person died twice or got buried twice. Buried twice. Died, I don't think. Buried, yes. Unless the paint died out. The paint died out twice, died out too. So I guess the person got buried twice and died out twice, I guess. Didn't really die a second time. And this was so popular, so popular that as you were talking about, they began, Egypt kind of began to run out of mummy. Yeah. I thought Egypt had a replenishable amount of mummies. No one, no location has a replenishable amount of mummies. They just, Egypt just had more than most. When mummies became scarce, suppliers resorted to preparing people like criminals that had died recently and prepared them like mummies to make them look like thousands of year old mummies and sold them. They would treat them with, I think you described it, bitumen and then dry them out in the sun. Mm-hmm. And... Make them look like uh, some uh, 
thousand, two thousand year old mummy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And while this paint was really, really popular, it did it did get its own bad rep because what doesn't come out with a bad rep? <laughs> there were tons of critics to the paint color mummy brown, especially as they looked at the source of its components and became disgusted. But to the paint itself, Robertson's of London was the large paint company that stocked and sold mummy brown. Mm-hmm. They still had mummy brown in the 1920s. It had lost its popularity, but they still had it in stock on their shelves to sell. In 1964 is when they actually officially ran out of stock. People were buying the paint, Mummy Brown, up until 1964. And after that, they had no more access to a mummy to make Mummy Brown. Therefore, the paint color Mummy Brown died and ceased to exist as we know it today. Goodbye, Mummy Brown. You shall not grace the walls of my house. Although I never want mommy on my wall. Sorry, I just had a really funny thought. Just the way you were talking. Remind me. Oh. <laughs> remind me. What? Just like, I, I, I just, hold on. I have to figure out how to actually say this. Mm-hmm. That reminded me of Caitlin Doty. And I'm just going, I wonder if she'll ever end up talking about mommy brown on Escamortician. <laughs> Not sponsored by them, by the way. No, great show. Just great YouTube channel. If you're interested in, I guess, the macabre kind of thing that we're talking about, then that's a good channel to check out. But yeah, that's the story of the paint known as Mummy Brown. Well, we unwrapped that. How about we get into wrapping things up? Oh, God. <laughs> this one, this, this one's fantastic. So around the time of the 1850s and into the 1860s, it's believed that America had a paper shortage as we were producing more newspapers than any other country in the world. And in fact, it was, I believe, estimated that we were producing more newspapers than France and England combined. An 1856 estimate said that it would take 6,000 wagons, not sure how big, but 6,000 wagons, each carrying two tons of paper to carry all the paper consumed by American newspapers in a single year, which would be equal to 405 million pounds of rags for the 800 paper mills in the U.S. at the time. I didn't know our newspapers would be made of rags. Newspapers were, a nickname for newspapers were rags, so I guess that makes sense. Our largest source of rags for newspapers came from Italy. But in 1854, Italy also began importing their stock of rags to England, which meant there was a shortage for the U.S. So in comes Dr. Isaiah Deck, who was an Englishman who lived in America, I believe, who was also a geologist. And he would travel around and try to evaluate and come up with an alternative paper source, including at one point when I believe he was in the Caribbean, looking at aloe, banana leaves, and even dagger grass to try to make paper out of technically you can make papyrus is a reed but you make paper out of it so why not his father was also incredibly into egyptomania and when his father passed away he also inherited his father's egyptian collection and also his general interest in mummies and at one point deck did some calculations and said that over 2000 years of embalming with an average lifespan of 33 years and a stable population of around 8 million people would leave you with around 500 million mummies, not including all the mummified animals, the most popular being cats, crocodiles, and bulls. And Deck even stated 
that is, quote, by no means rare to find above 30 pounds of weight of linen on mummies. And I believe it was the noble woman that you mentioned earlier. What was her name? Nesh Khans. Thank you. Nesh Khans. You're talking about the noble woman mummy from the 22nd dynasty? Yes. I, I think I am. Nesh Khans. Nesh Khans. Okay. I think that's who I'm talking about because the source I said just said princess, but noble woman works as well. But it's believed when Pettigrew unwrapped her, she had 42 yards of linen wrapped around her body. And Deck then, yeah, that's a lot. Deck even calculated that the average paper consumption was about 15 pounds per person per year. And the supply of Egyptian mummies of 500 million mummies would keep up with the American demand for paper for about 14 years, at which point a substitute supply would likely have been found rendering the need of rags unnecessary. We certainly like to go into excess of things out here in America for sure. I mean, how the heck did Egypt run out of mummies if there were 5 million? 500 million. I'm sorry, if there were 500 million mummies, how in the world did Egypt run out of mummies? We must have been consuming a lot of mummy. We ate them all. That's pretty much the conclusion. That's Eat disgusting. What we didn't keep, put on display, or curate in any way, we ate. Human beings ate mummies for quite a long time. Not just, again, not just in the Victorian times. We're talking medieval and Renaissance too, particularly. But it's not sure that people actually took his suggestion of using mummy rags as a substitute for paper pretty seriously. However, there is a book that's called Mummies in 19th Century America that actually says that Americans would wrap their groceries in mummy wrappings during the Civil War. So mummy grocery bags. Hip hip hooray. Would you? I know you I like know, mummies. I, you love mummies. You're wearing your ankh right now. Would you want a grocery bag made out of ancient Egyptian mummy wrappings? No, it's not going to last. Right. No, it's not going to last. It's like making a grocery bag well, out of yarn. Yeah, it's not only that. It's like, that's just desecrating. It's just sad. I'm already sad about the mummy unwrapping and the consumption of mummy. And then the mummy brown paint, you're making me sadder. <laughs> I'm a big, I guess you would call me an Egyptomaniac. I love Egypt, but this just breaks my heart. <laughs> uh, it, it's a bit of an understatement, I think, maybe to call you an Egyptomaniac, but I'll go with it. <laughs> Thank you. You're a nerd. <laughs> For, for for everyone listening she's as much into ancient egypt as i am into ancient rome and since our poll for the winning of this particular topic was diogenes versus ancient egyptian mummies she's really happy that mummies won now eventually <laughs> we will have our topic on diogenes i guarantee that but i was quite dead yes we will have diogenes he is an interesting character I'm just very happy we did Egyptian mummies today. <laughs> I felt so alone. I felt so left out without talking about my mummies. <laughs> oh, I'm not done. You, you want to hear some more about ancient Egyptian grocery bags? Sure. All right. So I'm not sure they're going to last, but okay. They didn't last. So as I said, the book mummies in 19th century America said that they would make grocery bags out of mummy wrappings, but I, I personally don't see that staying around very long because even though it's linen if it dries up it can become brittle like any other fabric especially if it's millennial old presuming you're having an actual mummy and not someone that was 
a fake mummy. But the idea actually came from a man named Isaac Augustus Stanwood, who actually ran a paper empire. And as there was a shortage of rags, Stanwood imported mummies from Europe and then turned the wrappings into brown sheet paper. His son Daniel recalls years later that the rags possibly actually caused a cholera outbreak at the factories, as there was no standard for infections at the time. Mind you, there wasn't really a whole lot of standards for much of anything except etiquette at the time. There wasn't a standard for cleanliness. There wasn't a standard for infections. There wasn't a standard, definitely not a standard for safety. Any health standards didn't exist back then. Nope. But cholera being a bacterium, it's not likely that it actually survived on the bandages if these were true, actual in ancient Egyptian mummies, because it wouldn't have lived that long on the, on the bandages kept inside not of an unless, airtight tomb. Not unless someone touched it when after it came out of the tomb who had cholera which doesn't seem likely no but the the outbreak cholera was a common outbreak at that time so more likely it was caused by poor personal hygiene or dirty rags that were also imported from recently deceased europeans not actual egyptian mummies i mean hey they replaced ancient egyptian mummies with the recently dead why not replace their wrappings yep 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 There is an article from April 1873 and an edition of the Druggist Circular and Chemical Gazette, which actually described a visit of a New York businessman who went to Alexandria in search of mummies for paper. And the article continues to state that mummies really weren't ideal for paper due to the various oils and botanicals in the rags, which led to the discoloration of paper. Uh, I still don't think rags and mummies and make for very good grocery bags. No, that stuff is going to fall apart so quickly. I, I really don't want my groceries, the food I'm going to consume, to be in a bag made out of mummy wrappings 2,000 years old. But you're living in today. It's not like they, well, again, I still wouldn't want my food can, in that kind of thing if I lived in the 1800s. You probably would. They have no way of, of uh, uh, disinfecting and, and killing everything that's on that or cleaning it. It was wrapped around a dead human being. Mm-hmm. Ew. Oh, it's very ew. Also, I mean, e- even if you wove the linen to make the, the bag stronger, I still think it would fall apart. But in the Victorian times, no, there were no standards of, of disinfectant. There were no health standards. But again, Powdered mummy was touted as a cure-all and was a cure-all for hundreds of years. So you probably at the time would have thought not much of it. And like, oh, I have literally a grocery bag made of mummy wrappings. I'm cool. Well, I mean, that's not the only thing that people did with mummies or their their artifacts. Oh, oh yeah. What you got? Oh, like I was discussing in the unwrapping parties, things would fall out of the wrappings. So they sold them. That doesn't surprise or, me. Well, also in the uh, unwrapping party, sometimes you uh, left away with a little party gift, an object from the wrappings. Ooh. You got to take one of the ancient talismans of the ancient Egyptians to help them with their journey to the afterlife, which, by the way, that was the most important thing in ancient Egyptian history. They started their tombs and the journey for the afterlife before i'm talking about just pharaohs in general before they even became pharaoh like their tombs were started when they were like eight so yeah you're going to take the objects that are extremely important to their afterlife and either give them away as party gifts or sell them or repurpose them to decorate your house or your 
your neck in the sense of jewelry. That's what they did. Mm -hmm. And traders at the time, part of the, the Egyptian trade market didn't, wasn't just mummies. It was artifacts from the tombs. And it was also so popular that tr some traders were known to have created fake artifacts to sell. That's how to high that. Of course they did. Yeah. Sometimes you could tell. And sometimes they were such a good uh, replica that you couldn't tell. You know, kind of like today, you can really tell a fake from on uh, reality. Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes they're really good and sometimes they aren't. Same thing back then. But yeah. I just had to add that little extra tidbit in. Add whatever you like. Well, I'm done now. <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've spoken enough about the sad fate of mummies in the Victorian era. For today, you could go on for days. I could. I'm not sure anybody wants me to. No. Like I said, Egyptomaniac. <laughs> well, I guess that would close it out. Anything that you want to go over before we end the episode? no not really just a, a reminder since this episode is late coming out weird history is still going to go out on thursday and we do have our guest episode airing the following thursday our first part of a of a three-parter as uh, airing three-part three series yes and just to clarify that three-part series with our guest speaker the episode that's airing next week is airing in two parts. Each of the three parts will probably air in two parts each. So six episodes. Let me rephrase this. There's three topics, two episodes per topic. Yes. Thank you. you yes. And both of those parts of the first episode will both air next week as well. That way you don't have yes. to wait two weeks for the next one. Yes. So that'll happen. And also don't forget Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, poll going out. Technically Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So we'll extend it by a day because I just did my calculations wrong in my head. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, four day poll. It'll be out before the next episode airs. So the 25th through the 28th or the 18th through the 21st? I'm lost. No, ne next week. So the 25th Today's through the 28th. Okay. I want to make sure that we have the dates for the listeners. 25th through the 28th. Ba-bam. There will be a poll you to decide what you'd like to hear for the following episode and then we'll do that what are the topics for the poll i don't recall uh i don't have them in front of me and i can't move so i can't give you that answer at the moment cat got your lap does that answer your question does this answer your question i believe it's nell gwen and something else i can't remember but we'll, we'll post and, it we'll let you guys know yeah i'll post it up on the instagram and the facebook pages We'll also reiterate it in the weird history. Yes. Okay. Uh, that would be a wrap. And we'll... Yeah, that'll do for this episode of the History Explains It All podcast. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. Bye. Bye.